and welcome to the Product Science Podcast, where we're helping startup founders and product leaders build high-growth products, teams, and companies through real conversations with people who have tried it and aren't afraid to share lessons learned from their failures along the way. I'm your host, Holly Hester Riley, founder and CEO of H2R Product Science. This week on the Product Science Podcast, I have Thor. Um, Thor, you know, I don't know if I pronounced your last name correctly. Ernson? Is that? How sure. Is, how do you say it? <laughs> my, dad's, my dad's name is Ernst. So I'm Ernst's son. So Ernstson. Oh, for real? Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. It's like the things I've read happened in the past, but hasn't yet met. Mm-hmm. Awesome. All right. Well, Thor Ernst's son. I'm so excited to have you here. Uh, among many other things, uh, currently um, Thor is the uh, founder and CEO of Alpha um, and uh, has done a lot of awesome things before that. So why don't we kind of go back to the beginning and then we'll, we'll kind of catch up to, to where you're at now. Um, Sounds good. So I know you've been in tech and product for a while, um, but tell me how it started. How did you first get involved? <clears throat> so it was uh, more about necessity than anything else. I was living in a living in a place where I had to have a security clearance to do any meaningful work, and uh, it turns out, as a citizen of Iceland, I couldn't get a security clearance, so I had to figure it out. And it wasn't really tech and product that pulled me in as much as entrepreneurship. So <clears throat> I could start a company and I could be a contractor, but I couldn't work for one, which was pretty ironic. And uh, as such, got pulled into it, and then started realizing that a bunch of people have similar problems, and those problems are often solved through a sort of a technology and product mindset where it may not be, you know, you may think your problem is you're not selling enough, whatever, but in reality, the way to fix it is through optimization of your experience of your product of looking through, you know, what you're actually doing as a business. And then the solutions to those are often technology related. So I got into it in sort of a, a back channel way through solving more meaningful business problems just using those as the tools. Oh, cool. So what, um, what kind of, uh, were you working for like a large corporate entity or what kind of organization were you in at the time? No, that was the, that was the thing. It's like I had to do my own. So <clears throat> started, I uh, set up a little LLC to do a consulting business and mm-hmm. did that for a while. Did that. This was back in 2001. Who were the who were the clients? I guess is is more what I was. Clients would be like uh, mid market companies, usually less than a hundred million in revenue. Uh, Sometimes as little as you know a a coffee shop or a or a clothing store or something like that, where they knew that the internet and e commerce was the future, but they didn't necessarily know how to get there. So anything from uh, yeah from traditional retail to asset management to service businesses and really there's a lot of different kinds of you know non-digital non-traditionally technology enabled businesses that we not only brought online but really like built the online e-commerce or just technology business on top of the traditional one and then wound up joining a buddy to do something that was totally different but still related which was build games on facebook and this is now 12 years ago, uh, 11 years ago. And, um, and we were looking at it the same way. So how do you actually figure out what people want? How do you, how do you quickly test, learn, iterate, and, uh, and put stuff out there? Because no rational person is going to say like, oh, I really you know, need this virtual farm equipment in my life. Otherwise, I'm not going to be happy. Nobody is actually going to say that. And yet, we got 450 million users to actually do that and actually want that. And it was kind of crazy because it was the exact same process that I was going through before. So whether it was, how do you sell, you know, one item of clothing on eBay versus to one person versus how do you deliver this virtual good to literally over a hundred million people um, was the same process. So I realized then the opportunity that goes with scale is just fundamentally different. So it's still tech and product. It's still solving you know, fundamental problems, but the, the problems shift as you grow and scale. So, uh, I mean, it's incredible that you went from, from 
um, you know, kind of hustling, like finding, you know, people who need help getting on the internet um, in all sorts of forums and figuring out how to do that. And then you, uh, I think you just said you joined a buddy <laughs> um, and, the, and that turned into or started, was it already, that's Zynga, right? Yeah. So that was, so we started their first remote studio. Okay. So it was already a thing when I started talking to him, it was about 60 people. Uh-huh. And then when finally, uh, finally came on board, it's probably about 120, 140, something like that. But the scale and growth was so crazy because we went from 200 to 2000 people in one year. And, um, <clears throat> and it, it came with a lot of really interesting challenges. Uh, as we did that, I was, I had a, a front row seat, but fortunately not, uh, Let's just say I didn't have to deal with those challenges, and then, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I could still learn the lessons from them. And then afterwards, started a few things. One of them is a healthcare company down in DC, and then uh, obviously Alpha, which is a market intelligence platform here in New York, where we help product teams figure out what, what products to build using the exact same mechanism that I described earlier of just rapidly learning, putting stuff in front of people and iterating, um, but now doing it in a technology-enabled way as opposed to having to struggle and suffer doing it all manually. It takes weeks or even months. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of steps in there that I think are uh, really interesting to our listeners. Um, it sounds like you, from the very beginning, you were um, doing a lot of testing and iterating, right? Like mm -hmm. running experiments is a core part of, of how, how you learn to do things. Um, what, are, what are some of the things you've seen along the way where um, other people maybe have had trouble with it, and how have you had the? How have you helped them, um, like learn how to do better experiments or figure out sure. they should in the first place? <laughs> sure. The, I mean, there's three basic points that um, happen in sequence that help just about everybody. And the first one and the hardest one is just to do something because it doesn't really matter what you're going to test or what you're going to experiment on, it just matters that you do it because the alternative, as stupid as it sounds, is not doing anything. And yet that's what most people do. So just getting out of bed in the morning, just deciding I'm going to try something, trying it, learning from it and doing it. Because most people, um, they'll get stuck in that and they will like plan and they'll wait to execute and they'll just like think about it and they'll consider it and they'll spend weeks or months not actually doing anything versus again, literally just let me just try this, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even have to be core to the business problem you're solving because if you don't have it as a mindset or a habit or a skill, um, you're not going to be right the first time you do it. So first point is just to do something. The second point is to learn from it as opposed to like launching something where, you know, if that experiment involves launching a product, then that better be right. And if that experiment is to, you know, get, get a product in the market <clears throat> and see what people think of it, if they'll buy it, if it'll generate revenue, et cetera. There's so many moving parts to that, that you will almost certainly fail. So the vast majority of new products fail. And it's often because they go into the market uninformed. They have a lot of hypotheses that didn't get tested. There's a lot of assumptions that are baked in. And like, it wouldn't have taken a lot of effort or work to just find out that it turns out People don't want a Facebook device in their homes, listening and watching to every action for a company that's probably one of the worst regarded companies when it comes to privacy globally today. Like it wouldn't have taken a lot of effort to figure that out, but they didn't. So they <laughs> just decided we're just going to do this anyway. Yes. Right? So what we're talking about isn't just like a two-person startup. You know, these are these are huge. You know, multi-billion dollar companies as well that go through this process because at the end of the day it's all about people and then uh, the third point is to um, is to really think about what you're doing from a process standpoint and optimize around iteration because it's not just enough to do something once it's not just enough like if you launch it it has to work so if instead you just have a learner's mindset and you just say what we're doing here is is not building this product we're just going to put it out and learn because it's a lot easier to get people behind learning than it is around, you know, getting product on the market. Um, and these people often might be people whose job is to tell you no, lawyers, et cetera. But if you get them on your side by telling them, well, we're going to learn from this, it's time bound and all this other stuff. 
know, then there's there's a lot of things you can do, whether it's a startup or a Fortune 500 company. And then the, the final point is to iterate because you're doing it really to build a muscle. You're doing it to really figure out how do you build as a core capability within yourself and within your organization, the ability to learn. And doing something, doing an experiment, doing a test, it's fine. Doing it again, it gets better. Doing it again, it gets better. So by the time you've done it 20, 30 times, you actually know what you're talking about. So then when you apply it to the real problem you're solving, you're actually doing it properly. But most people don't even do it the first time, or they might do it once, often through an outsourced relationship. And they think, oh, we validated this. But in reality, they just, they didn't. In reality, it's, it's huge confirmation bias. They see something that they want to see, and they decide that's it. Yeah, um, I, I love that. And uh, it's one of the things that, um, that I love about, you know, what Alpha has created because it's, um, you know, what you, the platform that you've built has really made it um, so quick and easy for people to just practice that skill. And, you know, not, um, I find it one of the best ways to convince uh, those hesitant planners um, that we should just go live when they know that they can go live again next week and the week after and the week exactly. after. And then it's like, okay, calm down. If the survey isn't perfect, if the question isn't perfect, if the prompt isn't perfect, we will check it again. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I love that. Um, so, uh, I want to know more about what that looked like in those, in those crazy high growth days at, uh, mm -hmm. at Zynga. Um, what, were what was the what was the ethos around experimentation i mean obviously you were doing it um was everybody doing it had it been built into the dna how did it work there yeah very much uh part of the dna and it's not so there it was more about analytics metrics measurement testing figuring it out a b testing every possible thing um <clears throat> to the point where a new game would come out we would basically create a quick and dirty version of it and see what would work. Are there mechanics? Are there flows? Are there things that somebody else has figured out? What can we learn from that? And we would do it by building you know, maybe 10 click prototypes or something like that, and then driving traffic into it and seeing what people would do. We would do all kinds of data capture, both on live products and live things, but also on prototypes and simulated uh, things. We'd do focus group. We'd do basically everything you think of. Um, and the, the most effective was always the sort of the quick and dirty stuff combined with super heavy duty analytics. Like every single click, every single modal, every single interaction is tracked. And then we would do analysis, uh, both live and after the fact, to see what are the, the actual drivers of the outcomes that we want. So what are the actual things that get you to play? What are the actual things that get you to pay and then what are the actual things that get you to share it with others? And then how do you replicate that across everything? So we would have regular, um, not meetings, that's the wrong word for it, but forums to share best practices. And then those best practices would be implemented across the board. And, uh, and the people that owned that were product managers. So product people are the ones that are really calling the shots on what goes in and why into these products because um, as an engineer or as a designer or even as a game designer, you won't necessarily know those other things around sort of the user psychology of behaviors. And, and it's not like your Stanford MBA or Harvard MBA is going to prepare you for it either. So what we hired for are super analytical, super smart people that could learn because nobody had the answers because it, it was all crazy anyway. So like nobody, again, no, no PowerPoint deck is going to tell you that people will prefer a pink tractor over a purple one. But by just testing it, by just doing it, by seeing what they actually buy and what they actually click on, we could actually we could test a, a, really, a, a really extraordinary amount of things where any idea just about could have been tested and in many cases was. Um, so <clears throat> afterwards at Rally Health, uh, we applied the same mindset because we had no idea what was going to drive patient engagement other than some basic psychological principles. We didn't know what problems people had integrating their fitness devices like Fitbit and all that stuff with their healthcare data. We didn't know if it was because they didn't want to do it or because it was too hard 
or just data wasn't there or whatever. We just knew that people weren't doing it. So then we started tackling problems that are related to it, that are more specific problems than you know, the bigger thing of driving healthcare engagement. And what we learned is you can actually take a lot of these things, parcel them into more manageable pieces, solve each one, and then put it back together in a way that makes sense. So you can optimize locally and do a lot of work there as a product, the product team, engineering team, or design team. And then when you put it back together, you understand how it fits into a more cohesive experience. Uh, and by doing that, you can break down complex problems in fields like education, healthcare, uh, and others, and and really start making a more meaningful impact than saying, you know, we're going to solve it all with this magic civil bullet that doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little more about that. So you, uh, what was your role in uh, Rally Health, and and how did that get started? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm always in this tech and product role. Uh, so usually CTO. So as in as a studio CTO role. Like titles architect, and then um, a rally CTO, and then here at Alpha, even it's largely a role I play. Moonlight as a CEO, and um, really, it's it's around solving these hard problems. Like, how do we have a framework? How do you get people together that have the necessary skill set? In the beginning, it's going to be like generalists that can just like take a blank piece of paper and figure it out, and figure out what they should put on there. And then over time, as the organizations mature, you hire specialists. So in the beginning, it was like five of us at Rally that really had no meaningful experience in healthcare. But we knew online, we knew e-commerce, we knew optimization, we knew gaming, we knew all those other things that were relevant. And then fast forward six months, 12 months, and I wouldn't be surprised if we had more like medical doctors on the, on the executive team than than not because it was like the, the pendulum swings. Now it's a bunch of specialists that can actually bring their network and deep expertise into this framework that we've created. And then similarly here at Alpha, it starts you know starts with all right. So we're gonna we're gonna reimagine how organizations work by flipping the hierarchy so that it's run by data as opposed to job titles. And then as you do that, you encounter all these really interesting problems. Because it turns out people don't like behavior change. It's really, they're really, really resistant to it. And it's really, really hard. So to do it, um, you know, we think we're solving one problem, but in reality, there's 20 others that we got to address first. So learning how to do that is the primary thing we're doing. And then once we figure it out, then it's how do you scale out the solution? How do you systematize, implement, and roll out? Because we have over a third of the Fortune 100 as clients. So when we say large, complex organizations, we, we don't mean, um, you know, we don't mean a few hundred people trying to figure stuff out. In many cases, it's hundreds of thousands of people. And we're saying, all right, so if there's one big consulting firm, for example, where their head of HR said to me the other day, they have 400,000 people and they know that in five to 10 years, at least half of them, their jobs will not exist. There will not be a need and this is like one of the top firms in the world. There will not be a need for them to send, you know, a random 25, 30-year-old consultant, bill them out at $300,000 a year to do like manual labor effectively from a technology standpoint. It'll just be automated. It'll just go away. So what will it look like? Are they going to let go of half the workforce? And how do they do that internally? How do they figure out who, et cetera? Are they going to reskill them? How do they do that? And then what does that mean for their clients and for their organizations and for the revenue and all these other much more complex things than like, how do we introduce this tool into this company? Yeah. So you've gotten to a place where you're really looking at huge problems, right? That mm -hmm. are happening out there. And I think one of the things that you, that you mentioned in there that um, is a, a really important skill for product leaders is, is how to break that down into pieces that different people and different teams can work on in a way that you can then break back or put back together into something that's a, that's a whole. Do you have exactly. any, um, I don't know, can you share like more specifically one of your past stories of how you did that? Sure. So there's lots of ways to do that badly too. So it's worth noting that it's not just as simple as you, you, take the thing apart and you solve each 
component and put it back together. That doesn't actually work either. Like you may think of it from the perspective of building a car. You know, if you have a tires from a formula one race car and an engine from, you know, whatever, it's not actually going to work well together. The whole thing has to work well together, but that doesn't mean that the constraints from one component overflowing into another can't be accounted for. There has to be a, an explicit conscious thing. So the, the tool, I guess, that has worked the best for that is <clears throat> when you take it apart, when you say something like, let's just talk about the patient experience when you get diagnosed with cancer, you know that, for example, you're going to be frightened and confused as soon as you get the diagnosis. Whatever the doctor tells you, you will literally not hear. Your brain is, in most cases, physically unable to process whatever is said. And it doesn't matter. They still optimize for their thing. They're going to say what they're supposed to say. And largely it's because of compliance, the legal things, but also it's just because they're busy and they need to move on to the next patient. So the people that get left behind, unfortunately, the people that are suffering the most are the patients in this process. So now the, the recommended advice is to bring somebody with you that can process the information for you and help you out as you go through it. So that's an easily solvable problem because you're talking about communication from one party to another. Like, all right, so you can look at how to solve that one problem, but really it's just one component of many. So now you need to be able to reference it. You need to be able to go back to it. You really need all these other things around it. So by taking a problem like that apart, talking about, say, patient journey and education, to, all right, every time you talk to a doctor, there are certain things that need to happen, X, Y, Z. How do you optimize X? How do you optimize Y? How do you optimize Z? And then testing it by putting it back together. So you optimize the component and then you see how the component plays out in the larger process. So it's not just enough to solve that because you can have the best possible explainer of what's going on. But if the patient is literally not able to receive it, it just doesn't matter. So how do you figure out how to make that better? Because obviously that should not be full of you know, complex things that are, um, that are not helpful. But at the same time, that isn't necessarily the moment that the patient needs to receive it. So being able to tie together the problem you're solving on a micro level to the bigger workflow process outcome on a macro level um, and going between those two states so that as you're running an experiment, you optimize locally, but you then look at the global picture and you say, all right, so is this really the solution? Because otherwise, like in data science, there's a, there's a process you go through where you can get stuck in local minima and maxima if you're trying to figure out how to optimize something. And you optimize a model, you optimize you know, whatever it is, you have a fitness function and you evaluate it and you evaluate it and all of a sudden you wind up with any deviation from it reduces the value. But in reality, it's because you're stuck somewhere that isn't the maximum or minimum, it's just the local one and you need to snap out of it. So doing that to yourself mentally is very important as well. Like actually asking open-ended questions about, are these really the constraints we're dealing with? So like you can optimize and optimize and optimize and optimize, but if nobody is even looking at the page you're optimizing, it's probably not where you should be focused on. I love that. That's, um, I think, a lot of sort of the the growth between uh, an average product manager and like a fantastic one um, and same for founders comes in this place of like getting outside of that local um, optimum mm -hmm. or, you know, maximization. And um, I'm curious because with what you just said, some of it just seems like you have a good discipline of asking yourself tough questions, like pushing to think about the bigger picture. Are there any like, tactics that you've or you know sure practices that have helped you instill that sure so one of the best is um sort of cross-discipline training so if you if you look at what makes a really great entrepreneur and all you're dating all you're doing is reading books on entrepreneurship you're probably not really gonna get any better because then it's like they're writing to an audience that already knows most of those concepts anyway but if you start reading about history or literature or creativity or like one of my favorites is stand-up comedy like you will actually learn more about your vc pitch 
by studying how Jerry Seinfeld writes jokes than any amount of this is what your pitch deck should have, X, Y, Z. Because really all of that stuff is are extracted out formulas that worked for somebody else, whereas the other one is more fundamental around empathy and listening and like being present and iteration. Instead of starting with this is what it should be, here's the formula, starting with I don't know what it should be, but let me test all this stuff out. If people laugh at these things, great, let me do more of that. Let me refine it. Let me make it better. Let me iterate on it. Like that's the same process you should go through when you're talking to investors, when you're talking to partners, when you're trying to hire people, when you're talking to customers. Like be responsive to what they say. If something works really, really well, do more of that. If it doesn't, don't do that. Like especially in the early stages. And some of that advice might be codified in, you know, in these startup books or business books, but but in reality, like these come from other fields and other disciplines. So when we talk about experimentation, like there's probably more to learn from the scientific method and like biology than there is from seeing how how Best Buy turned into a different kind of company because of you know, whatever. Like it's not really it's not really the the lessons that you can apply to your own business from somebody else. It's more the principles underneath them that are often from other disciplines. Yeah. Um, I love that you touched on that one because that's one of my like personal um, you know, passion points is the the scientific method and everything that I learned about it from from chemistry and physics and you know how that applies to to what we do today. Um, and it and it is, you know, sometimes when I talk to product managers who are trying to do more experiments and they tell me about the way they design an experiment and I think about like what do I hear when they tell me that? And how do I process what needs to change about it? And it's, it really goes back to the principles from how to design experiments, not, not from any exactly. of the product management books, you know? Exactly. Um, you know, I feel like I come across stand-up comedy in a lot of product managers. That, that seems yeah. to be a, a thing too. Why, why do you think that is? It's an improvised iteration. It's, a, it's an emerging field, product management. Like there are some that do it really well, but it's really pretty new. So, you know, I, I bet you can you can draw a direct line between not comedy necessarily, probably more improv, but um, things like that that are creative fields and things that are emerging. You know, I, I I think there's you could have said the same about like sales, like sales enablement, BDRs, SDRs, etc. You know, ten years ago when that was a fairly new a fairly new thing. Now that's a pretty well established thing. So people actually go into that as a career. So if you look at like, what does it take just to figure shit out on the fly and be effective? Like that skill set is largely comedy, improv, uh, things like that. Yeah. I also love how um, in that space, you know, there's so much about, well, you, you just have to do it. Like you can't just, you can't just right. go plan somewhere in a vacuum, you know, what you're going to say on stage or like, it's just practice and iterate and you're, you know, you'll never get there if you just plan it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's, it's good for that. Um, so, uh, so I guess I didn't, I don't know if I realized that you had kind of been an entrepreneur before you were in, um, you know, product roles um, but you definitely seem to really span that whole thing, jumping back and forth, you know, sometimes being in a larger organization, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes in a smaller one. What are the, um, how, how much do you think that works for most people and how has that worked for you? If you look at it from the size of the organization, um, you're going to get stuck in these like false patterns and equivalencies. It's really the team that matters. So if you're working in a huge company, but on a great team or in a tiny company, but on a great team, it's going to be the same experience. Uh, you know, there might be some differences around resources and other constraints, but, but really it's the same kind of thing. Um, so what I've always found is that it really comes down to people um, not the name on your W-2. So if you're working with great people, you're going to be happy. And you know, in the right setting with the right vision and motivation and all that stuff. 
But if you're not, it's going to be kind of miserable and people are going to check out and like they're there for the paycheck. And there's usually a bigger check around the corner somewhere else. So, um, so what I found is really getting people aligned with a vision of some sort that they share or that we would all share and that you can get people really, really motivated and really excited regardless of where they are. Like I've built teams within large, like I'm not going to say shitty organizations, but it wouldn't be unfair to call them that. And like people love it, like super motivated. They love it because they're working on a challenge. It's something interesting. That's something they want to do. Um, and you recruit the right people, which is probably obviously a huge part of it. And then, and then you know, drive, drive them along a certain path where it's where they want to go. And they want to work together. And it's not that they're working for you necessarily. It's that they're working for each other and they're helping each other get there because they all want to get there together. So I've seen that be almost identical, regardless of the size of the organization. Now, the jobs change, the roles change, et cetera. The larger the organization, you have to, a lot of things get a little bit watered down because they have to. Um, But you can still have small teams and have like, highly cross-functional teams that can deliver the same regardless of the size of the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Um, How do you uh, build up that vision and find the right people when you're you're creating a new team? That's a good question. Um, So I always do the same thing, which is start with a list of conversations. doesn't matter if it's fundraising, recruiting, or, or something internal like this. And it's internally you have a smaller number of people to talk to, but still. Um, and then you just have a conversation and you, you talk to other people in the organization and you say, these are the things we're working on. Like who really cares about that? Who's really motivated to address integration of behavioral health care and primary care? And why do they care? Um, and what you'll find right away are people that, that are willing to step up and take on almost any job to do that because they're mission aligned. They're focused. They're trying to get something done and they, they want to do it. Now, it could be for personal reasons. It could be career growth and development. It could be you know, somebody's been in a, in a certain role for a long time. I've got a buddy of mine is a lawyer and he's been a lawyer for a while and decided he doesn't want to do law anymore. He wants to be a product manager. And, you know, he goes from making mid uh, mid six figure salaries and pretty pretty cushy career to making probably a tenth of that as an entry level product manager with no expertise or training it's like if you're willing to go through that great and it's not because you care necessarily about the company it's for internal reasons but it doesn't matter like somebody like that as long as they stick with it and as long as it's genuine like they are going to work their ass off and they're going to drive the team forward because they have these reasons to do so, whether it's external or internal. Um, so that's probably the main criteria in a team uh, for the first, say, 10 people. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've worked with people like that, and I've worked with people who are very far from that. And I'm finding <laughs> myself curious, uh, what do you do when you yourself find yourself on a team or you know, somehow working in an organization where... Um, where, what do you do with people who are, who don't have that motivation for it? As a manager or as a, as, or if you are that person, what do you mean? Uh, as a manager. So I always try to find the role that, that makes them happy. Even if that role includes outside the company, like it could be internal and great. We'll, we'll try to make that happen. But in many cases that role might just not be at that company, especially as the company matures. Mm-hmm. You know, it was fun and crazy and interesting and whatever, like, all right, when you're a few hundred people, it may not be that interesting anymore. And that's okay. So figuring out career paths, figuring out, you know, individual motivation and stuff like that's probably, probably the, the first step. And if you understand that, then you can either figure out how the current opportunity or company plays a role in that individual's development. Or if it doesn't, figure out what would and how you can enable that. That's definitely one of the areas that I've seen, especially in younger growing startups. Um, not all leadership teams are good at that. Um, sometimes right. they just seems like they've missed that 
that, um, yeah, the building that skill, it's a hard skill, right? But it sounds like you, you found your ways uh, through that. Yeah, no, it's been, I mean, that, that's like a core discipline. Um, and also just from doing this enough times, I've probably gotten, actually, I don't know the number, over a dozen companies off the ground. Actually, no, way more than that. Uh, over probably 20 companies off the ground that are like funded or exited uh, like substantial businesses. And, and they're like, even though I learn something every time, like there's a lot more commonalities and differences, regardless of the industry, regardless of the field. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it's cliche, but it really just does all come down to the people in the beginning. Yeah, it really does. Um, do you ever talk to people who don't believe that? Like, um, I know, all I, the time. what do you tell them? No, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, they have you know, their perspective and usually it's, uh, it's like technologists. So usually people will say something like, no, 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 it's not the team that matters. It's my algorithm or it's my data or it's my report or my whatever. I'm like, okay, there is value in that, but there's a very low like terminal value. Like it's not really going to get anywhere beyond that. You can look at something like Google's probably the best example of an algorithm driven company where, you know, a single innovation, a single idea, basically, of looking at who links to you as a determinant of value and saying, all right, so that's a business we'll build. And if I should be an interesting number or an interesting report to get to like for hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue. And then now 20 years later, like there's still basically that, but they still have tens of thousands of really great, some of the smartest people in the world trying to figure out what they're, what else they're going to do. So if you say it's just the algorithm and nothing else, they could have just like, they could have called it quits a long time ago and like not done anything. And it would have not become, you know, one of the, the best known and, and, um, most interesting tech companies in the world. So it's not the algorithm, it's not the data, it's the people around it. Now there does have to be some sort of innovation or some sort of technology or some sort of unique advantage, obviously. But um, but that's not the end all be all. Like there's, what you do with it is then the question. And that's all about people. Let's loop oh, back. Also, Tell- also doctors, by the way. Doctors don't believe that, what I just said. Oh yeah, what do they believe? They believe that, well, they, first they believe they're God. So yes. they must be right all the time. There's no possible chance that anybody else can come and tell them what's right or wrong. So <clears throat> building, a, building a company from the ground with doctors is actually a whole different kind of challenge. Mm-hmm. They fundamentally don't believe in the team. Mm-hmm. And I'm yeah. making a huge, huge generalization there, but I've seen this play out many, many times. Yeah, I mean, definitely there are, I, I'm sure there are some doctors who have a really strong team and, you know, work in a strong team, but I've also coached um, uh, startups in the health space and, and I mean, which of the people on their team were they coming to me telling me, how, Holly, how do I, how do I do product management with these people? It was the doctors. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yes, <laughs> on the whole, I, I hear that for sure. So that actually, um, I was, I wanted to um, circle back to how does the rally health story end? So I think I read about it, but, um, for our listeners, uh, I, I want to hear from you, um, what happened with that? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> we built it as a patient engagement tool on a platform where it was really the only place still where you can combine self-reported and clinical data to drive messaging, engagement, uh, and other things that are critical in, in the healthcare space. And uh, it was a valuable enough tool for United Healthcare to buy them and then fold it into, into Optum and their offering. So now the Rally team is, is a core part of the United leadership team. And then, um, and this is their sort of premium engagement solution across the entire book of business. Like the last I saw, I was doing over a billion dollars in revenue. We bought it for uh, more than that. And, and it's great because like it's, it's taking a consumer digital like first approach and by that i mean like how do you really put the user in the center of all these decisions and how do you really make tech enabled you know delivery mechanisms and all this other stuff that's obvious but really hard to do in healthcare so we just made it easier that's really it so solved a, a simple problem with data 
that makes something a little bit easier for a lot of people. And that's a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah. Like it's a multi-billion dollar acquisition and a multi-billion dollar revenue company right now. So it's, it's interesting to see in, in large industries like healthcare, education, transportation, a bunch of others, how tiny, tiny, tiny little things have huge upside, huge outcomes. And I think for those of us who work in, uh, I guess, faster moving parts of startup world tend not to work in those huge industries that have just ridiculous amounts of the economy uh, mm-hmm. tied up in them. And so then when we do see something like this, um, I don't think it's intuitive to all of us that that's the case, right? Like you can take this tiny little piece and make this tiny little improvement, but the scale is so huge right. you know, that it's, that it's amazing and, and impactful and, and, Lucrative. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I would actually push back on it a little bit because yeah. if, if people think they're working on, you know, a peer-to-peer lending app or something like that, and they think they have to own all of that. In reality, they're working within finance and they're working within like a tiny little subsection of finance, but still it's finance. If you're doing a podcasting company, like you're working within media, like the broader industry is still huge even if what you're looking at as a problem is small. So this is where I would go back to what we talked about earlier of optimizing locally versus globally. And if you're really tackling that problem, whatever it might be, like how do you actually scale it out? How do you actually think about where should you focus your effort and energy? Because it's limited. So you have limited time. You have to you have all these other constraints individually. Because in vast majority of cases, you are within one of those industries. Like if you hate finance, but you have a crypto company of some sort, well, tough shit. You're in finance, whether or not you want to be like, that's, that's what you're, the people you're talking shit about, you aspire to be them Yeah. because you're working in the same space. It just happens to be a different tool you're deploying to deliver the same value to the same people. Yeah. So, yeah, no, you're totally right about that. I, I uh, stand corrected. I think for me, it's uh, one of the things that happens is, and this is exactly the small uh, optimization versus the big picture is, um, you know, we think about the, the sliver of the market that's in this uh, frontier face as, as what we're trying to capture. And, um, and then, uh, you know, we do, depending on what stage we're at or what we're doing, you know, maybe talk about how big the whole market is, but like, we're really not thinking about those numbers as much in, you know, what we're doing. So, yeah, I think that's totally true. Um, I also, um, I also want to know, like, I like to just kind of uncover some of the things that I think seem opaque um, from people who haven't done it. And one of them is things like acquisitions. So mm-hmm. how, how did that happen? Like, did you build a long-term relationship with United? Did they just come to you? Like what? Um, yeah. So well, that's that. that was a little bit more complicated because, so in healthcare in particular, you have to be able to have the conversations in order to get deals done and whatnot. So our investors that we actively recruited and, and got to back the company were luminaries in the space. Like they had accomplished a lot. They were CEOs of big companies um, like Aetna and others that backed us. So that was a little bit of a unique situation because a part of the company DNA on our side was getting these people that were very much experts and insiders to be able to uh, help navigate the ecosystem. Now, in other cases, you might use advisors and then they use advisors there too, but you might use advisors to help. So the thing that's interesting about M&A is if you're an entrepreneur, chances are you have not gone through something like that before. Chances are that when you talk to a corporate development person, like you're having those kinds of conversations, maybe not for the first time, but even if you're a successful serial entrepreneur, no more than like two or three times. So let's say in a 20 year career, you do that three times, like that's great. Whereas on the other side of the table, this is what they do all day, every day. So they have had that conversation a million times and they're playing by just a different set of rules because you don't even understand what the hell they're saying, especially when it's your first time. So you think somebody's really interested in buying your company. It's like, no, it's, they're just doing their job. Like you think getting a meeting with an executive is like a huge milestone, but in reality, it's that executive's job to take the meeting. 
but they're just doing their job, their regular you know, nine to five job. But to you, it's like a life changing opportunity. So there's this huge asymmetry in that relationship that it's very difficult for most people to navigate. So that's where, you know, assuming the deal size is large enough, that's where these advisors come in, you know, investment bankers and, and other transactional advisors. Um, so, you know, building the relationship is important. Um, maybe not necessarily with the deal people, but certainly with the business unit people. So if you're trying to, to demonstrate to a potential acquirer that you can deliver value to them, like there's no better way to do it than to actually deliver the value, actually start working with them, actually see what it would be like to work together. And then, you know, when they make a decision, um, they can have a huge impact on the actual deal terms too. Cool. I know very little about all of that. So that was really, really informative. <laughs> um, are there any other um, sort of passion areas that you'd like to talk about that we didn't hit? Um, yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> oh, let's get going and see. There's a lot of things. Primarily it's around creating culture of experimentation. Uh -huh. What an experiment driven organization really is doesn't matter the scale uh, and all the, and all the things that you have to go through to really do that. Uh, all the things you have to learn, unlearn uh, and do. So any, any topics like that are always fascinating to me, obviously, because that's the platform we built at alpha, but also it's because what I've been doing for almost 20 years now. Yeah. Um, what are the, what are the biggest things that people need to unlearn to operate in that culture? Planning up front with uh you know in a sea of unknowns you're going to be wrong so the faster you just start doing something you're going to actually get to the right answer faster um because again the the planning 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 execution mindset which is fine if you're building a factory and you have to have capital needs and then you're going to go through sales and marketing and all that stuff later um that's just out outdated because if you're building an app you can get it in the market and iterate on it, that's great. Then that's what you should do. So really flipping it from launching to learning and you say, okay, so what are the things I can do today to learn so that when we launch it, which hopefully will be very, very soon, it'll be more likely to be successful. And then you keep learning and you keep iterating. Uh, that's the most important thing, as opposed to planning up front for how things will be once the skies open up and a rainbow comes down to you with a pot of gold and just delivers it to you because that's how all entrepreneurial ventures go of course <laughs> but it almost sounds like it is for you <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, anything that works is another 10 things that don't work yeah no i know that's true um it seems like you found some pots of gold but uh <laughs> but maybe not because a rainbow opened up and just delivered them <laughs> um yeah, no, that's awesome. And I uh, I feel like I've said that in so many ways just today. Like I'm constantly faced yeah. with that because I'm also, you know, always coaching people on experimenting. And it's like, okay, we got past, like for one thing we just did, it's like we got through this first phase of um, like just exploring more, trying to expand out so we're not stuck in a local area. And then we're like, all right, this is the place we want to do some deeper focus. And now people are like, cool, we're going that way. And I'm like, well, we're, but still for learning, not just we're building the thing. Like it's still for learning. <laughs> so I hear that. Um, what are, what is different about leading that kind of culture as opposed to just being in it? Um, it's a good question. I think um, the biggest difference is that you own it. And it's not about owning the activities and the actions and the tasks and that kind of stuff. It's about actually like making sure that people understand why it's important and then actually have all the things they need to be able to be effective in an experiment-driven culture. Because it goes from, again, the, the planning and the resources around that to, all right, so what's the thing you're trying to learn? What are the blockers in your way to get there? And how do I systematically, as a leader, not just remove those blockers, but equip you with the tools to do so, which often requires other people buying into it as well. So. If it's a singular organization that's committed to it, that's, that's actually not that hard. It's when you have an organization within a larger one 
where that organization works a certain way and the larger company does not, that's when you get a lot of really difficult tension. And it's natural tension, but it's, um, you know, that's when it has, you have to be more deliberate about creating cover so that people can do it. So as an executive, you would have to be able to set the ground rules and communicate them very clearly and like having buy-in from your other you know, managers and peers that it's okay to have a different culture here because eventually that's where we're going. We're all going to become that. But let's, again, let's not run it as a separate company because if you remember, it's all about learning. So let's see if this is more effective, if this works in a pocket of the organization. And if it's five people or 500, it doesn't really matter. If they can, if you can demonstrate the right results out of that, um, it works, whether that's to your investors if you're a startup or a management team if you're in a big company. That's that's the, the biggest difference is that your job is more about enablement than directing activity, uh, which in my opinion is what it should be anyway. Cool. Um, any final, uh, like, I guess, favorite message for founders who are um, trying to trying to do it better? Um, just, I mean, the biggest is understanding that it's just not going to be the way they think it's going to be and accept that. And if they're operating in that mindset, they're learning, they're experimenting, they're figuring it out, like everything's going to be fine. I don't know a single founder that's like really actually, I would say like struggling in a meaningful way. Like it's, everybody says it's hard. Everybody says it's it's not like digging dishes is hard. That's a shitty job. But what we do, like we're, we're all... Like it's, it's all gravy from here. Yeah, that's good perspective. Awesome. Um, well, if people want to, uh, to learn more, um, what would be the place you want to send them? So we have a lot of resources around this kind of stuff at Alpha. Um, so just alphahq.com and browsing around is probably the most helpful. We have a podcast with great guests, some of which you might know. <laughs> Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> um, at, this is productmanager.com. There's a lot of really great lessons there. Or if you just want to email me, happy to chat about any of this, happy to help in any way I can, Thor at alphahq.com. Um, and there's probably some other resources based on the kind of problems that they might be trying to solve that I'm happy to help with as well. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really awesome um, conversation, and I can't wait to share it with everybody. So thank you, Thor. All right. Likewise. See you soon. Yeah. See you. Product Science Podcast is brought to you by H2R Product Science. We teach startup founders and product leaders how to use the product science method to discover the strongest product opportunities and lay the foundations for high growth products, teams, and businesses. Learn more at h2rproductscience.com. Enjoying this episode? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. I also encourage you to visit us at productsciencepodcast.com to sign up for more information and resources from me and our guests. If you love the show, a rating and review would be greatly appreciated. Thank you.